Welcome back to another edition of the Main Event Heat Podcast. I am your host, Rob Weathers. We have got some great shit to talk about this week. We are going to review Wrestle Kingdom's Night 1 and Night 2 taking place on January 4th and 5th, respectively, in the Tokyo Dome. I want to start off by saying we're only going to be reviewing Wrestle Kingdom in this episode. I know there was a lot of wrestling that happened this week. Uh, We just had Hard to Kill from Impact. AEW just had their first TNT special, Battle of the Belts. Not going to be talking about those. There are a lot of great outlets that have been talking about those shows. My friend Dylan Hager did a write-up about Hard to Kill. I highly recommend you guys go check that out if that's something that you're into. If you guys are interested, that's at dhagersports.wordpress.com. Little shout-outski for the brother there but yeah not going to be talking about any of those other shows i just want to talk about wrestle kingdom for a couple of reasons one it was a fantastic show that i think deserves all of my time and two it was the only show that i felt like watching this last week that was it i watched wrestle kingdom i did not watch anything else i didn't watch AEW this week i I definitely didn't watch wwe or nxt didn't watch impact nothing I'm going to try to do my best to to just go off my notes and not kind of go off on tangents throughout here because I wrote a lot of notes. There was a lot of matches to go through. I think there's like close to 20 matches. So let's go ahead and get started on night one, January 4th in the Tokyo Dome. The first thing that I noticed, and it's such a weird thing to notice right out of the gate, New Japan always has ads on their canvas. This show, they had significantly more ads than I've ever seen, which is a good thing because it's like, you know, they're getting money and I'm happy for them. But it's also like, holy fucking Christ, guy, do you even own any more of your company or did you just sell it off to everybody? Yeah, some people might be able to find that distracting. I think that the wrestling's good enough that it doesn't bother me too much. But if this was in like any other promotion, I think it would distract the hell out of me. The show started with a pre-show. If you guys know my rules for these reviews, I typically don't like talking too much about the pre-shows. I I try to stick to just grading and reviewing the actual shows, but there is a little bit on this pre-show to talk about. There were a couple of really cool moments that took place. Night one had the New Japan Rambo, which is their version of a rumble. The rumble is a little bit different than it used to be. It used to just be a traditional rumble. The only difference was instead of just being able to throw people over the top rope, you can pin and submit them as well. They kept that, but now the rumble, or as they're calling it now, the Rambo, is... It's kind of warped into this whole King of Pro Wrestling gimmick. So now whoever the last four people are, they just leave the ring whenever they get down to the final four. And then they, the next night on January 5th, will have a match to determine the provisional King of Pro Wrestling champion. And I talked a little bit about this last week. I think that whole concept is kind of goofy. It looks really stupid whenever you have four people just standing there looking like nutsacks in the ring, not fighting each other. But a couple of the big things that I wanted to talk about, there were a couple of surprise entrants. And I think that's why a lot of people like Rumbles, is because of surprise entrants. And we've gotten quite a few of those from the New Japan Rumble over the years, and this year was no exception. One of the first big surprises was Shima, who most American fans like myself probably recognize Shima from his time in AEW a couple of years ago. I was at uh, the first Fighter Fest whenever him and Christopher Daniels had their singles match. Shima comes out, he actually winds up making it into the Final Four, and one of the last entrants out was actually fucking Tatsumi Fujinami. Holy shit, fucking Tatsumi Fujinami came out and participated in the Rumble. He was a part, I believe he was a part of the the Jushin Thunder Liger retirement festivities that took place, I believe that was two Wrestle Kingdoms ago. 
Fujinami was in one of the, at least one of the retirement matches with Liger. Liger brought out some legends to help him say goodbye. But yeah, that was super cool to see. The Rambo ended with Shima, Chase Owens, Yano, and Minoru Suzuki as the final four. Uh, just like I said, it looked just as fucking awkward as it sounds. You've got four guys just standing there in the ring like nutsacks. All of them just decided to take turns beating the fuck out of Yano because Yano's kind of held that king of pro wrestling trophy hostage for the last couple of years. So they're just doing everything they can to make sure he doesn't win it again. But yeah, not going to be giving a grade to that. Not going to be doing an in-depth review of the Rumble. But, but I thought it was important to go over because those four men do meet in a match on night two. Main show, one of my first notes is that the opening video package has big fight feel written all over it, and it's gotten me so fucking pumped up for this show. A lot of times, like if you're watching most American pay-per-views, especially WWE, is you'll get video packages all throughout the show. In between every match, there's a fucking three-minute video package explaining the feud. New Japan doesn't do that. They front-load all of it, and they're not crazy. It's just enough to show you why you need to care about these matches and why you should care about the show. And then once the wrestling starts... Up until recently, whenever they started doing the disinfecting the ring every so many matches, there was no stops. Like, it just went bang, 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 match, match, match. So I love how they do this. I love how they, they front load the, uh, the promos for the show right at the beginning. They're really, really good. The video package was great. And like I said, had me excited to watch this show. Watching the Shibata section of this video package had me starting to think about, okay, who could he be wrestling? Because last week, I didn't really have an idea of who his opponent possibly could be. And I, I started thinking, you know, what if he wrestled one of his guys at the L.A. Dojo? And my thought was either it was going to be A, Carl Fredericks, who was the first guy to kind of graduate under Shibata, or it was going to be Alex Coglin, because Coglin has been blowing it up outside of New Japan America this last year. He's, he's had some great matches everywhere he's went. And I thought that maybe Coglin would get his shot at Shibata, and if he beat Shibata or if he did well in the match, then Shibata would graduate him and let him come up with his own character. We'll talk a little bit about that match whenever we get to it, but at this point, that's the thought process that I'm having. Then we start with Sho versus Yo, the former Rapongi 3K tag team members. These guys, multiple-time junior tag team champions. Only a matter of time before they broke up. I haven't seen any of this that's taken place since they broke up. I did not know that Sho was a part of Bullet Club until I did the preview for the show last week. He is in the subsection of the Bullet Club called the House of Torture with Evil, dick to go and Yujiro Takahashi. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about the House of Torture as this goes on, but I am not a fan. But I had high hopes for this because I know how good Sho and Yo are. Whenever they were a tag team, I had high hopes that whenever they did break up, Sho would become the next big star of the junior division. A lot of those hopes go away after watching this match. I love the simplistic black attire for the bad guy, white attire for the good guy. I, I love that. That's simple storytelling, very effective. You miss the first shot that takes place before the bell ring because the camera was kind of, was kind of fixated on Togi Makabe sitting at ringside uh, with the commentary team. Shout out to the American announcers, Chris Charlton and Kevin Kelly, for really doing, not only in this match, but all throughout both of these shows, doing a great job of getting me caught up on all of the things that I've missed. Uh, this match was pretty quick. Dick to go comes in and saves show while show was tapping out to Yo. And then shortly after, Yo winds up getting a roll-up. 
and it just ends. It's not a very long match. I wasn't super invested in it. It seemed really weird. Like I, I kind of, I figured that these guys would do a lot more considering all the high hopes that myself and every other fan had for them whenever they were a tag team. I gave it a B minus. Like I guess it's a decent way to start off the show, but I don't know. I, I wasn't too focused on this match. I, I just, I wasn't super into it. And then uh, big apologies for this next match because I I did not get very much in the way of notes. There wasn't a, really enough time to catch notes for a couple of reasons. One, I was in the middle of a meeting at work, so I had the audio off for, for the pay-per-view and I was listening to my coworkers, so I didn't really get a chance to pay too close of attention. Another thing is uh, this is a match that contains Rocky Romero, and I'm going to apologize in advance. I really do not pay attention to those matches. But this was Hiroshi Tanahashi and the Mega Coaches, Rizuki Taguchi and Rocky Romero versus the Bullet Club. Tanahashi and the Mega Coaches get disqualified because Tanahashi grabs a kendo stick and beats the dog shit out of Kenta with it. The big story in here is setting up, you've got A, you've got the Junior Tag Team Championship match that will be taking place on the next night that the Mega Coaches and Bullet Club's cutest tag team will be a part of. And then you've got Kenta and Tanahashi. And the only real purpose that this match served was to set those two matches up. That's why you had Tanahashi beating the dog shit out of Kenta with the kendo stick, because this time Kenta does not believe that Tanahashi has it in him to, I guess, let the dark side out, because Tanahashi has always been this beacon of all things good in New Japan. And this was Tanahashi just kind of proving him that he can go to that dark place, I guess. My grade for this match is, I wrote C+, plus, I guess. <laughs> That's about all I've got for it. Next up, I promise the review starts to get better after this. We have got Los Ingobernables de Japón versus the United Empire. My first note is I will never get tired of watching the LIJ entrance. I love how each one of them come out individually and they stand in a line on the stage before they all make their way to the ring. It's just so official. This was my first time watching a full-fledged United Empire match. I believe last year's Wrestle Kingdom... They were just starting to get the United Empire together, but like I hadn't actually seen them together as a unit before until this. And I think that they're all really good at using that old school heel formula. Like Osprey is just such a twat and is not likable in any way, shape, or form. And he is using that to his advantage, being a very, very effective, mouthy leader of this group. Jeff Cobb is just built like a brick shit house. And he is the, the prototypical heel muscle. He does not have to talk because his actions speak louder than words. Hinare looks kind of like a douchebag with the sunglasses and the suits and all that, but it's effective. I actually, want uh, something I had noticed whenever Hinare was in the opening Rambo match on the pre-show, his strikes and everything look amazing. He's got some of the best strikes in that whole company right now. And Great O'Conn, a guy that I used to not think very highly of, I used to not give a flying fuck about, Great O'Conn I think is very good in this, like, diabolical monster heel role. I really I really like their entire package. Will Ospreay wins the match by hitting the hidden blade on Bushi. It's so odd because, like, just a couple of years ago, Will and Bushi would be in, you know, junior heavyweight programs together because they were both in the junior heavyweight division. Will Ospreay has put on some weight and become a heavyweight, but I guess I hadn't noticed how much bigger he'd gotten because he just towers over Bushi. It was weird. And they did a really great job of setting up the night two matches for both of these teams. Sonata walks up on Great Okan, but Okan just puts his arms behind his back and just does not face Sonata. And it just, 
that whole air of Ocon just couldn't give a flying fuck about Sonata. He just wasn't even on his radar. I loved it. And then Jeff Cobb and Tetsuya Naito get face-to-face. Yeah, a lot of setting up for what night two is going to be. After that, you have got Katsuri Shibata's return match. Now, like I said at the top of this, I had started getting the feeling it would be somebody from the LA Dojo. My thought was it was going to be either Carl Fredericks or it was going to be Alex Coughlin. And then before Shibata makes his his uh, his run out to the ring, Ren Narita comes out. So it was somebody from the LA Dojo, but I had completely forgot Ren Narita was there. That actually makes a lot more sense than both Coughlin and Fredericks. So Narita comes out, then Shibata comes out. I thought it was weird that they had Ren Narita come out first, like he's the surprise, shouldn't he come out second? But like I do understand Shibata being a big deal, usually the big deal gets the last entrance. But yeah, I thought it was kind of weird that they had Ren coming out first, considering he was a surprise. I think, uh, once again, Chris Charlton is doing a fantastic job selling the importance of this match. Just whenever the words, the wrestler will wrestle, came out of his mouth, I got fucking chills. It was so great. This isn't going to be some five-minute exhibition. Shibata is going to fucking wrestle. And another little caveat here, this was supposed to be a catch wrestling rules match, which is mostly a regular wrestling match just without strikes. Shibata gets in the ring, grabs a mic, and says, hey, how about fuck all that, let's just have a wrestling match. And Narita says, okay. Kind of weird. Why did you build this up like a catch wrestling match and then decide last minute it's not going to be? Or maybe they, maybe the company legitimately thought that Shibata couldn't handle a wrestling match yet and then last minute they decided they did. Or maybe Shibata went into business for himself. I don't fucking know. I highly doubt the last one's true. But yeah, just kind of odd that we had the stipulation. We knew the stipulation going into it and the Shibata says, ah, fuck that. Even though they have thrown away the catch wrestling handicap of the match, Shibata throws like two leg kicks and then proceeds to just do catch wrestling for about five or six minutes, which I was, I was like, what the fuck? Like, is it, is it or is it not a catch wrestling match? I was so confused. But regardless, Shibata was rolling around just like he had never lost a step. Him and Ren had some great exchanges with each other. You know that entire time Shibata has been at the LA Dojo, he hasn't just been stretching those young guys and getting them ready for competition. He has been fucking training because that man has not lost a step. It was such a sight to behold. After several minutes of catch wrestling, Shibata does wind up getting Narita seated into the corner. He does that humongous, beautiful drop kick into the corner that everybody loves to see. Then he goes over with the PK just after the 10-minute mark. I enjoyed this match. I I am more excited than ever to see what Shibata gets to do after this. I'm hoping he gets one of those big United States runs like Suzuki got this last year, where he just spent like two months just having dream match after dream match. I want Shibata to do that in 2022. But I really enjoyed this match. I think it was perfect for what it was. I give it a B plus. After that, we get a video package with some great news saying that New Japan Pro Wrestling is finally coming back to Axis TV. New Japan has not been on Axis TV since Impact got bought by Anthem and took over that Thursday time slot. Now, New Japan is going to be following Impact every Thursday night. So, usually Impact airs at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, Thursday night, and then at 10 p.m. they will have a thing called Impact in 60, which is just like a compilation of some older matches. Usually it's based on a theme, like it'll surround a specific wrestler or a specific match type or something like that. They're going to get rid of Impact 60, it looks like, and replace it with an hour of New Japan Pro Wrestling. 
I am so excited for that because, like I talked about in last week's preview of this show, I don't watch New Japan regularly. Now that there is going to be a regular show airing every Thursday, I plan on watching it a little bit more often. I know that the matches that they play are going to be on like a pretty big delay. I believe that New Japan is going to be jumping into this time slot the first week of March. More than likely, the first several matches of the show are going to be from this Wrestle Kingdom card. But regardless, that's such a big deal. New Japan is getting a regular TV time slot in America once again. That was great news. After that, we had some not great news. Evil wrestled Ishii. I haven't been very high on Evil since he left LIJ. Like, I get that the whole thing was getting kind of stale, him and Sonata versus G.O.D. all of the fucking time for the tag team titles, but I don't think this was an upgrade at all. Even commentary is not super sold on this because they can't help but talk about every time Evil and Ishii wrestle each other, Ishii just tears the fuck out of Evil's ass every time they wrestle. Match starts, one of the first spots, I think Evil runs Ishii into the barricade and absolutely just fucks the Japanese ring announcer. Dude flips backwards and his fucking table falls on top of him. Jesus Christ, what a, probably the scariest bump of the whole fucking match. Uh, after a little bit of wrestling takes place, Sho and Yujiro come out to interfere on behalf of Evil, but Yo comes out to make that save. During all of the confusion, Evil gets a chair shot on Ishii, hits everything as Evil, and gets the pin on Ishii. Evil becomes the new never open weight champion and the commentary team is burying the fuck out of Evil. I don't know if I've talked about this enough on the show. I think that I have brought it up with MJF and AEW. Whenever your commentary team is like actively going out of their way to bury a talent, I don't think that that's making that talent a better heel. And I don't think that it's it's showcasing, look, this guy's such a dick, even the commentary team doesn't like him. I don't think that it works the way that people want it to work. To me, when I hear the commentary team burying evil like this, I just go, okay, well, that's just making me not stand this shit even more. Like, evil has 100% become the bathroom break guy in New Japan Pro Wrestling for me. I think this whole House of Torture stable is. The amount that I had to see that stable during these two nights was way too much for me, and I don't want it. I don't care. Like, that's the piss break match anytime those guys are in the ring. And it's such a damn shame because it's comprised of very talented people. Evil and Sonata were, like, the greatest fucking tag team in New Japan for a period. Yujiro Takahashi, I've always really enjoyed. Show, like I said earlier, I had high hopes he would be the big dog after the Rapongi 3K split. But I don't like any of this. And I gave the match a C plus, and I think that that's very generous. After that, we have got... Chaos is Hiroki Goto and Yoshihashi versus the Dangerous Techers. Uh, I think I talked about this enough last week. Was not at all looking forward to this match. Night one had a lot of matches that I'm just glad we got out of the way. Because I didn't want to watch this because I didn't care. I don't care for any of these guys. ZSJ I kind of like, but I don't care for anybody else. My first note is that Taichi's entrance is still fucking stupid. It really is. I don't. He comes out fucking lip syncing to a song, and it's just I don't know. Uh, timing on most of the pin attempts in this match was super fucked. Like, there's definitely a problem with referees in New Japan just totally telegraphing when they're gonna do two counts. 
I think it was probably Marty Asabi in this match, and he's really bad about it. And I just noticed that, like, there was so many two counts that were, like, three and a half counts. But he just held that hand in the air for fucking ever on the two. But not a whole lot to report from this match. Goto and Hashi wound up winning with a double team and become the new IWGP Tag Team Champions. There was a little bit of out-of-character sportsmanship at the end between all four wrestlers that I was, okay, I don't care. Uh, match was all right, I guess, C+. I know that a lot of these matches I haven't had much to talk about, and I do apologize for that. It's just that some of these matches I didn't give a flying fuck for, and I just didn't think were that great. But I promise you, they get a lot better, especially whenever we get to night two. After that, we have got Hiromu Takahashi versus El Desperado. Desperado is the current IWGP Junior Heavyweight Champion, but commentary is putting over Takahashi as the ace of that division, which it's it's undermining Desperado. Even though Desperado is a champion, he just will never be on that same level of Takahashi. Whenever those two are in these big match situations, Takahashi is usually the guy going over. This was a barn burner of a match that I actually did not take very much in the way of notes on just because I was locked into watching it. This match went less than 20 minutes, which was amazing to me because it felt like so much more. Like, they squeezed so many spots into that 20 minutes. It was amazing. Like, it, it, the pace of the match reminded me of the third match between Okada and Omega at the G1, where they knew they couldn't go an hour because they had a 30-minute time limit, so they were rushing, 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 and Omega had to do everything that he could to get that one-winged angel in the middle of the ring. This reminded me of that. Desperado wins, hitting two pinche locos back-to-back -back in the center of the ring. I give this match an A. Uh, like I said, I don't have a whole lot of beat-for-beat beat written down on here just because I was locked into this match. It was so fast-paced, and it was great. But Desperado getting this huge win on Hiromu Takahashi on the biggest stage of them all in Japan. I think Desperado finally staking his claim to possibly being the biggest name in that junior division. I think at this point, you can't do what you did going into this match. We're talking about, yeah, Desperado's a champion, but Takahashi's the face. I don't think you can really do that after this because Desperado proved that he's just as good, if not better, than Takahashi. Loved it. Great storytelling in this match. After that, we have got Kazushika Okada versus Shingo Takagi. Usually, whenever you get these, these heavyweight title matches, you get this big video package showing everybody who has held that championship over the years. Uh, with the new belt, it is not just a new belt design. It is a new belt in general. It is not just the heavyweight championship. It is the world heavyweight championship. So you get a new video package, and there's only three fucking people on it, and it's just not as cool. And I really wish that they did not treat this like it was a new belt, and we could still continue to pay respect to the history of that IWGP heavyweight belt. Not a huge fan of that, but that's the only thing I'm not a huge fan of about this match. Okada makes his way to the ring with a little bit of an Inoki tribute. He's got he's got a kimono on similar to Antonio Inoki. This is the 50-year anniversary of New Japan Pro Wrestling, and on this kimono that Okada is wearing it has a lot of huge accolades that have taken place during that 50 years and a lot of them are Okada's own personal accolades really cool love to see it Okada dominates a good portion of the beginning of this match hitting all of his greatest hits on Shingo but is purposely trying to avoid the Rainmaker because Shingo has a really good history of countering that move when Okada does first finally attempt to hit the Rainmaker on Shingo, Shingo counters it immediately and hits a pumping bomber, which is his own version of the Lariat. 
This match is strong style as fuck. A lot of stiff shots back and forth by both of these guys. Okada reverses a roll-up to finally hit the Rainmaker. He hits it twice in a row. Then Shingo responds by hitting his move Made in Japan. Absolutely love that. Probably my favorite of Shingo's finishers. After Shingo hits Made in Japan, he hits a couple of more of his moves. And Okada kicks out of three fucking finishers in a row. Okada hits his beautiful shotgun dropkick. And then follows that up with a landslide tombstone. And then one big-ass Rainmaker to get the win. Becoming the new world heavyweight champion. You know, going into this, I did not really think super highly of Shingo as a main eventer. That's not to say that I don't think highly of Shingo in general. I love Shingo. I always thought him being in that world title picture was kind of weird. Like, Okada has this long lineage of these great rivals like Tanahashi, Naito, Omega. And I just haven't looked at Shingo in the same light as those guys. I think after this match, I consider Shingo one of Okada's greatest rivals. This was a great match that I was 100% invested into the entire time. I give it an A+. After the match, Okada completely dodges Red Shoes holding up the new World Heavyweight Championship belt and goes straight for V4 sitting on the outside. Okada grabs V4, he lays the belt down in the center of the ring, and then bows to it, and then gives it back to the guy at ringside, and then takes V5. Well, fuck. <laughs> I was really hoping that Okada was going to retire V5 immediately, go back to V4, because everybody loved that belt so much more, and go back to the history. But he instead used this opportunity to say goodbye, to give a proper send-off to V4 one last time, and now he officially recognizes the new IWGP World Heavyweight Championship. Uh, after Okada finally puts on V5, Will Ospreay comes out to the ring to start a little bit of shit. Uh, I wrote that he is really good at being a douchebag, probably because he doesn't have to try too hard. And it's, it's definitely coming off as natural for sure. He tells Okada that he is just an interim champion and says that he's going to reclaim his title on January 5th. And then he tells Okada after he beats him for the belt, then Okada can leave New Japan and become an actor. I did not know that that was apparently in the cards. Fuck, I really hope that doesn't happen because I don't want Okada to leave. As Osprey is making his way back through the crowd, Okada gets on the microphone and calls Osprey a fake champion and says, I'll see you tomorrow. Okada cuts the traditional post-match promo, gives a heartfelt goodbye to the heavyweight belt, and makes way for the world heavyweight belt. I gotta say that after seeing V5 a whole lot throughout the build-up for this show and during this match, I don't hate it as much as I have hated it, but it still doesn't look anywhere near as good as V4, and it's kind of a shame that this is the last time that we're going to see V4. But yeah, I, I did give that match an A+. Easily the greatest match on this specific night. Overall, I give the entirety of night one a B. There was one great match, four pretty damn good matches, and four not good matches. But night one was still, I think, with that big happy ending that we got at the end of that main event, I still find it to be a decently enjoyable show. Like I said, there were a lot of matches I didn't really care for, but I think that the good does outweigh the bad. Oh, Owl and his Ziggy Dice and Twitch are partnering up to bring you a live streaming professional wrestling spectacular unlike anything seen or done before. On January 15th, 2022, Ziggy Dice and Paradise take over the action building in Atlanta, Georgia. It's gonna be huge! The biggest event ever! Live interaction. 
And God forbid we give the chat control. So get off the couch. Or don't. This ain't my show. It's yours. So join us live in person or from anywhere in the world at twitch.tv slash Zicky Dice. 8 p.m. Eastern. Don't be late. Outland. back and we are going to talk about night two of wrestle kingdom taking place on january 5th once again we had another pre-show this is a really big pre-show several multi-man tag team matches not going to go into much detail on here but i will go through it really quick the first match was tomoaki homa yuji nagata and togi makabe going over the bullet club second match was master wado satoshi kojima and hiroshi tenzan going over suzuki goon uh one thing to note in that match master wado submitted el desperado which is pretty fucking wild considering el desperado just retained his junior title against hiromu takahashi the night before so i guess master wado is going to be next up for that spot kind of wild that they did this on the pre-show in a fucking multi-band match of all things and then after that lij went over more guys from suzuki goon really big really long pre-show a lot of multi-man matches i do appreciate that new japan had they have a lot of, of of old guard in their company. They have a lot of veterans who have been around for twenty plus years, and they're not clogging up the main event scene with these guys. They're they're putting them in these early show spots. A lot of times, putting them up against the young lions, giving those guys a chance to to get licks in. And you know, they they do a really great job of having these old vets in these positions where they're able to teach and they're able to perform at the same time. I really appreciate. It. I think that a lot of American companies, specifically WWE. WWE can learn this is how you treat your old guard do not have them clogging up the main event scene there is a place for them and I think this is a really good spot opening match you have got the Bullet Club's cutest tag team uh, ELP and Taiji Ishimori versus the mega coaches Rizuki Taguchi and Rocky Romero against the Flying Tigers the Flying Tigers are the defending junior tag team champions that is Tiger Mask and Robbie Eagles. The Bullet Club gets eliminated pretty quickly because El Phantasmo had tinfoil in his shoe. All right. <laughs> it was okay. So then the the match continues with just the Mega Coaches and the Flying Tigers and Robbie Eagles submits Rocky Romero to retain the New Japan Junior Heavyweight Tag Team titles. I give the match a C+. I think I was in another meeting. I was in a meeting for a couple of these matches, so I wasn't paying super close attention. And also, like I said, it's a Rocky Romero match, so I just cannot physically get invested into it. Now let's move on really quick after that. We have got this big stardom match. Tam Nakano and Saya Kamatani versus Starlight Kid and Mayu Iwatani. This was such a big deal. The women of stardom have uh, had, dark, I believe, a couple of dark matches on the New Japan Wrestle Kingdom shows. But this is the first time that they actually got a televised match. And it was on the main show, not the pre-show. Uh, that's such a big deal for stardom. I think that all four of these women did an amazing job of showing what the women in that company are capable of doing. A lot of high spots, a lot of pin breakups. You could tell that they knew they didn't have a lot of time to work with, so they were getting in as much of their shit as they possibly could. They were making sure that this crowd, who probably a lot of them don't normally get to see them, they got to see exactly what they can do. Nakano and Kamatani go over Starlight Kid and Mayu Iwatani after Kamatani hits some big-ass finish off the top rope. I had no idea 
what that move was. She had a big sequence. I think she did a drop and then the top rope attack. I don't even know the names of those moves. Like I said, I did not have commentary in my ear. I was still in a meeting at work. But uh, it was it was impressive. All four of these women did a great job, really showcasing what Stardom's capable of. And I hope this is not the last time that you get to see the women of Stardom on a New Japan show. I give this match a B. After that, we have got the King of Pro Wrestling Provisional Trophy match. The four men in this match are Shima, Minoru Suzuki, Toro Yano, and Chase Owens. These are the four men that remained after the Rambo on night one. Immediately, the second the match starts, they take out Yano. They don't want him to be a factor. They're sick and tired of Yano having this trophy. Shima and Suzuki square off right after that. I did not realize that that is something that I needed in my life, but it was fucking awesome. While everybody is distracted doing their own things, Yano slides back in the ring and exposes one of the turnbuckles, traditional Yano style. He throws Suzuki into said turnbuckle, and then Shima throws Yano into said turnbuckle. All four of the competitors wound up getting themselves into different submissions at the same time, which was kind of goofy. Suzuki wins by hitting his Gotch-style pile driver. Very short match, didn't overstay its welcome, which is great. Suzuki tries to kill Yano, then Yano handcuffs Suzuki, to the top rope so that he can escape. Um, I gave it a B minus. You know, it was very short, not even a 10 minute match. Just real fast, real simple. I probably would have given it less than a B minus if Suzuki didn't win, but considering Suzuki won, I'm going to at least give it that much. I do love Suzuki. Maybe this whole King of Pro Wrestling thing won't be such a joke here in the near future because the actual legitimate badass of the company now has the title. After that, we have got Chaos versus House of Torture for the Never Six Man titles. Uh, not really much to report from this. Evil hits a low blow on Yo. Show follows up by hitting Yo in the face with a wrench. And they retained the six man titles. I don't really care about any of this. I gave it a D. Yeah, like I said, the House of Torture, they're just not doing it for me. These guys have immediately got go away heat with me. And this is the first time I've ever seen them as a team. It was, it's not great. I don't like it. And like I said earlier, the commentary team kind of burying all this while it's taking place right in front of me, not really helping anything. After that, the pro wrestling Noah team makes their way to the ring led by Kiji Muda. Like we talked about on last week's episode, there's going to be a huge New Japan pro wrestling versus pro wrestling Noah show. That show did take place just a couple of days ago, but I believe it's going to air on a tape delay next week. So I don't have any reviews from that show right now, but I do plan on watching that show. And, you know, maybe if you guys do want a review, maybe that's something I can do on the YouTube channel. You've got the guys that are in different factions wearing their own little track suits. It was super cool. You got this guy from the Congo team who I'm assuming this is probably their leader. He gets on the microphone and starts asking for a fight. Los Ingobernables comes ringside and shit talking ensues because Congo and Los Ingobernables de Japón will be in, I believe, the main event of that show. A lot of shit talking between both teams. Uh, LIJ eventually leaves because there was only three of them and there was like fucking 20 of the Noah guys, which is probably the smartest thing to do. But yeah, it, it got me kind of excited to watch the show and I can't wait for it to finally air because I'm, I'm sure I'm going to enjoy it and I'm hoping that I come out a Noah fan after it. After that, you have got Sonata versus the Great Okan. Great Okan controls for the most part of the match early on. The story seems to be that the Great Okan has kind of studied Sonata's playbook to a T and knows how to counter everything that he can do. So Sonata has to find some way to trick Great Okan in order to beat him. And he winds up doing that by slipping out of the Great Okan's finish and catching him with a roll-up. 
it was a decent match. I was really surprised with Great Khan's performance. Like I said, I did not think very much of him going into these two shows and coming out of these shows. I think that he is actually a very viable contender in that company. I gave it a B-. You know, not a fucking barn burner of a match, but it was a good showing by both men. I probably would have had Ocon go over. I don't think that Sonata going over really does much of anything for him. But still, like I said, enjoyable match regardless. After that, we have got Tetsuya Naito versus Jeff Cobb. The commentary team, once again, just like throughout the entire show, doing a great job of painting Tetsuya Naito as this old gunslinger on one of the last chapters of his career. You know, Naito's been in New Japan for a very long time. We don't know how many Wrestle Kingdoms he's got left under his belt. He has had tremendous problems with his knees throughout the years and they do a really good job like I said that old gunslinger that's that's how they're painting Naito in this match Jeff Cobb attacks Naito before the bell match starts with a lot of aggression from Jeff Cobb Naito immediately starts countering him with some aggression of his own setting this up to be quite a hard-hitting strong style match and that's very much what it was the big you know back and forth forearm spots that you see in a lot of these matches a lot of heavy strikes and heavy grappling moves to each other after a fast start, though, the pace of this match dramatically slows down. Jeff Cobb has got Naito on the outside in a suplex position. He winds up slamming Naito's back into the ring post and then suplexing him on the floor. And then that's pretty much when the whole pace of the match changes right after that. They get back in the ring and they do some heavy back and forth with each other. Naito winds up picking up the win with a Destino. I find myself coming out of this match wanting more. Jeff did not get a lot of his offense, and Jeff has a lot of these signature suplexes that we've all seen in just about every other Jeff Cobb match. You didn't really see him in this match. These guys had a lot more left to offer, I think, and I really hope this is not the last time they wrestle each other. But yeah, like I said, I wanted more, and if you can leave the fans wanting more, you did something right, I give the match a B. I saw on Twitter the other day, and I was kind of having a similar thought watching the show, but AJ Gray tweeted that Jeff Cobb looks like how Taz thought he looked. And that just popped the fuck out of me because I had noticed watching this show, I was like, you know, Jeff Cobb really starting to look like Big Taz to me. So I even started calling him Big Taz while I was watching the show. And I just thought it was funny that AJ Gray was having a similar thought coming out of it. After that, we've got a huge fight here. Hiroshi Tanahashi versus Kenta for the IWGP US title in a no DQ match. Kenta enters second and grabs two kendo sticks from under the ring, slides one into Tana, teasing a little duel between the two of them. During the match, Kenta gets back under the ring to look for more weapons and winds up finding his old USG1 briefcase, which he won the United States version of the G1 in order to get a shot at the US title, which at the time was John Moxley's. Kenta loses to Moxley, but then Moxley does wind up losing the title to... Lance Archer, I believe he lost the title Lance Archer on AEW television, if I'm not mistaken. Lance Archer loses the belt to Hiroshi Tanahashi, and then Tanahashi loses it to Kenta. And now we're here. Tanahashi hits Kenta over the head with a guitar that did not look to be gimmicked properly. Because whenever you see like a Jeff Jarrett gimmick guitar, the guitar kind of explodes over the guy's head. This one really didn't do that. It kind of just popped a little hole in the guitar and wound up cutting up Kenta's head pretty bad. That shit looked like it fucking hurt. Tanahashi nails Kenta with a sling blade on top of a stack of chairs. Follows up by trying to hit the high fly flow, but Kenta dodges it and Tanahashi eats shit across the chairs. Kenta sits Tanahashi in the corner and stacks a bunch of chairs on top of him. 
and then follows up by hitting Shibata's dropkick. Cannot wait for Shibata and Kenta to finally have that big match that all of us know is going to be coming sooner rather than later. Tanahashi then lays Kenta on top of a table with a chair on top of him. He goes to the top rope to hit high fly flow, but Kenta winds up countering. Kenta winds up then hitting a top rope falcon arrow on Tanahashi through the table. God, the offense in this match so far has been absolutely amazing and just way more gruesome than any Tanahashi match I've ever watched. And that's a big story beat in this match. The commentary is talking about Tanahashi does not like going to this place. You know, Omega tried to get Tanahashi to go to this place and he refused to do it. But now Kenta has finally gotten Tanahashi to do it. Kenta grabs one more table from under the ring and a big ass ladder. This ladder is fucking huge. This is like a shoot 30 foot ladder. Puts that in the ring, goes to climb the ladder, but then but then Tana tips Kenta off of the 45-foot ladder, and Kenta hits a trash can on the way down, cutting his fucking eye. Oh my god, that shit was hard to look at. After that, Tanahashi lays Kenta across a table and then climbs up the 60-foot ladder and hits high fly flow, and I was fucking shook. Tana wins, holy fuck. Guys, this ladder, I'm telling you right now, shoot 75-foot tall ladder. This thing was absolutely incredible. And Tanahashi does t- high fly flow off the top through a fucking table on Kenta. I've never seen anything like that. Fuck a Tanahashi match. In matches in general, like you've seen table and ladder spots and matches before. But this fucking ladder was 100 foot tall, guys. This thing was insane. I cannot believe it. I love this match. I give it an A. It's so much to love about this match. Holy fuck, one of my favorite matches from the show. After that, we have got our main event for the evening, Okada versus Will Ospreay for the IWGP World Heavyweight Championship. I have got a lot of notes on this match. I'm going to try to stick strictly to the notes and not go off the rails here. Match opens with some chain wrestling, followed by a bunch of striking exchanges. Osprey has several unsuccessful attempts at big moves as Okada easily counters them. Osprey then chops Okada to the outside of the ring to take control himself. They get back in the ring for more back and forth. Okada hits a clean shotgun dropkick off the apron, knocking him and Will Ospreay to the floor. Okada goes to fly over the guardrail, but Ospreay counters him with a super kick. That looked fucking awesome. Ospreay harkens back to the big fatal four-way match for the junior heavyweight tag title a few years ago whenever he climbs up the lighting truss and moonsaults onto Okada to the floor. That's big heavyweight Will Ospreay showing that he can still very much do the junior heavyweight shit. Ospreay tries some old junior heavyweight moves and goes for the Sasuke special, but Okada counters with a tombstone on the outside. That looked fucking nasty. Awesome fast-paced counters in the ring, ending with Ospreay hitting a flying Liger bomb. Ospreay continues to hit amazing offense over and over. Will tries to hit a Rainmaker on Okada, but Okada counters it with a Stormbreaker. Will tries to do Okada's finisher, but Okada counters with Will's finisher. I fucking love that shit. I love whenever wrestlers swap signature moves like that. It reminds me, like, I think the first time I ever really saw that was The Rock versus Stone Cold back in the day. I love that shit. And I never thought anybody could really pull off Stormbreaker the way that Osprey does. Okada did a great job. After that, Okada goes for a Rainmaker of his own, but Will Osprey counters it with a Spanish fly. Holy fucking shit, that looked cool. After several counters, Okada finally hits back-to-back Rainmakers, but Osprey kicks out. Will hits a Rainmaker of his own after surviving the Money Clip submission. 
Okada wins a heavy forearm exchange and then follows with two Rainmakers, and Osprey counters a third Rainmaker with a hidden blade. Oh my fucking god, the amount of hell that these men are putting themselves through. I've lost count of how many close call pin attempts there have been at this point. Okada then hits a shotgun dropkick, landslide tombstone, and then one final big-ass Rainmaker for the win. The high spots in this match were off the charts. After all these years and seven matches against each other, Osprey still cannot escape the shadow of his former mentor. Okada is not ready to give up his spot as the top dog in New Japan. This match gets an A+. I loved everything about this match. This is something that you can typically look forward to on these Wrestle Kingdom shows. The main event is going to be a big fucking slugfest that you find yourself just completely wrapped up in. And that's exactly what happened with this match. I love this match. I didn't know if it was going to be possible to have a better match than night one between Okada and Shingo. But they did. This was amazing. A plus all the way. After the match, Okada gets on the microphone, gives Osprey some props. And then Naito interrupts Okada and challenges Okada for that world heavyweight title. And Okada agrees. So we are finally going to get another huge match between Naito and Okada. These two are longtime rivals. Can't wait to see this match. I imagine it's probably going to take place on the big 50th anniversary show that they're planning in March. After that, Okada invites Inoki to meet with him in person for the 50th anniversary of New Japan. That sounds super fucking cool. Obviously, Antonio Inoki, the original owner of New Japan back in 1972, whenever the company first started. Okada gets emotional. Thanks to fans for their continued support. Loved, 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 loved every single bit of this entire main event segment. There was a very strong main event and co-main event on this show, and I think that that gives Night 2 the edge over Night 1. The main event of night one was very, very good, and the co-main event was pretty damn good, but both the co-main and main of this show, I think, were significantly better. I do not think that two nights are necessary going forward for Wrestle Kingdom. They're probably still going to do it, but I kind of hope that they revert back to one night because so many matches, like especially on night one, there were several multi-man matches that their only purpose was to set up matches for night two. And then on night two, there were several multi-man matches that only purpose was to be fallouts from night one. Get rid of the multi-man matches and just have like 10 matches like you used to back in the day. There's no reason for this shit. So I think that there are too many unnecessary matches to do two nights, but I do believe that the important matches carried their weight and then some. Night two overall gets a B plus from me. And that is my review of Wrestle Kingdom 16, January 4th and 5th from the Tokyo Dome. I absolutely enjoyed watching this show. If you have not watched it yourself, first off, why the fuck did you listen to a review first? And secondly, please go watch it. Get New Japan World. Buy it on Fight TV. Whatever you want to do. Highly recommend watching the show, if only for the main events. The co-main and main events from both Night 1 and Night 2 were fantastic. That Osprey-Okada match is one of the best Okada matches I've ever seen. And Okada has had some fucking amazing matches. I think it literally was the best Will Osprey match I've ever seen. And of course, that U.S. title clash between Kenta and Tanahashi. Way more brutal than I thought it would be. Tanahashi proven he ain't got no problems going there if he has to. So much to enjoy on this show. Speaking of shows that are really easy to enjoy, next week is the big show for me. It is Zicky Dice's Outlandish Paradise in Canton, Georgia, January 15th, live on Twitch TV. 
if you can be there in person vip tickets are currently sold out but i do think that there are under 20 ringside tickets still left and there should be several general mission tickets left too you can get tickets online at zickydice.com or if you don't want to be there in person you just want to watch the show live on twitch you can do so by going to twitch.tv the show will be on the front page on zicky dice's twitch channel it's going to be really, really cool for all of the people watching at home because it's going to be kind of an interactive show and the people on Twitch are going to get to play a part in how this show plays out. I am so excited about this show. There are some amazing matches that we have planned for the show. The opening match is going to be a quadruple cataclysmic clash between Darian Bingston, Trey Miguel, Chris Bay, and Myron Reed. Like, listen to those names. I'm going to say them one more time. Darian Bingston, Trey Miguel, Chris Bay, and Myron Reed. That's going to be an awesome match. I hope they get all the time in the world. I could watch those four fly around the ring all night. Not only that, we're going to get the Hey Brother Battle Royal. We've got Dalton Castle versus Effie. We've got Taya fucking Valkyrie making her return to the Indies against Thunder Rosa. That's that match by itself blows my mind. And we just announced the main event. Zicky Dice will be in the main event against Dark Order's Evil Uno. This show is going to be amazing. This is such a big deal for me. I cannot wait to finally get to this next weekend so that we can do this. I have been working so hard on this for the last several, several weeks. Almost a couple of months, actually. I know I haven't talked about exactly what I'm going to be doing on that show. If you are curious about what I might be doing on that show, you can follow me on Twitter at SweetSexyRob because I have been dropping hints like a motherfucker about what I'm going to be doing. And like I said last week, next week's episode of Main Event Heat on January 17th, I am going to be talking about all things Zicky Dice Outlandish Paradise. I will be doing a review of the show, and I will be talking about my personal experiences, and I will actually be going into detail about the job that I'll be doing on the show. And I know you guys are probably tired of hearing about that show at this point. I've been putting it over like crazy on here, but this this is going to be huge for me. This show is going to be the biggest test of my career. If this goes well for me, it could open some doors, and I'm really, really looking forward to it. Cannot wait for January 15th to get here. And that's going to do it this week for Main Event Heat. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed my review of Wrestle Kingdom 16. If you would like to send in any feedback, questions, anything you've got, you can do so by sending an email to maineventheat at yahoo.com. If you would like to follow me on social media, maybe find some clues for what I'll be doing on Zicky Dice's Outlandish Paradise, you can do so by following at SweetSexyRob on Instagram and Twitter. If you would like to support the show, the best way to do that is by picking up a t-shirt at ProWrestlingTees.com slash RobWeathers. And once again, thanks for hanging out. <clears throat>